Welcome to David Gibbons in discussion our guest today, C.L. Mitchell, introducing the upcoming series, The Torah. Welcome to In Discussion. I am absolutely delighted today to introduce our series Love God Live Truth. This is a long-term series that is going to be identifying and exploring the Torah with two gentlemen, uh, C.L. Mitchell and John Kaur. And as a preface to the series, we have C.L. Mitchell with us today. Uh, C.L. is a senior pastor at his own church in Phoenix, Arizona, Veritas Bible Church. And C.L. Uh, practices and teaches the Word of God. Um, his discipleship uh, classes are open to his membership uh, at Veritas Bible Church as much as they are open to the public and taught at postgraduate level. CL, welcome. Thank you, David, and uh, uh, it's good to hear from you. As a preface to the series, I wanted to just review or provide you with my understanding of the Torah and then allow you to expand upon uh, my words, as it were, to uh, elaborate to our listeners um, how you would like to ex explore this and, and how you would like to uh, provide your style and color and uh, academic uh, background purpose and, and application. Uh, the, the Torah, uh, as we explore it over the coming months, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong at all here, uh, known as the five books of Moses, uh, through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, these are really um, set up the uh, or establish the, the whole of the Old Testament and New Testament. The Torah, of course, contains the commandments of God uh, as revealed at Mount Sinai. And what I'd like uh, to, uh, to have you explore with a CL as a preface to the series Love God, Live Truth is, is how um, we need to break those down, um, how we need to uh, look at Genesis uh, as the most important part of the, of the scriptures and, and uh, relate between uh, the five books uh, and understand the, the uh, contextually how they work together. Well, thank you, David. I um, I will add this that when we're speaking, first of all, about uh, Torah, it, it is uh, something that is certainly a well of information into which one can dive and um, hardly seek in this lifetime to touch uh, the bottom of the sea, as it were, metaphorically. Uh, when we're speaking of the term Torah, uh, of course, with that particular term, terminology, we can with specificity be referring to those first five books of the Bible uh, that you referred to by name earlier. Or it can be used in generality to speak of the Tanakh uh, completely, the Torah, the Nebuim, the Ketuvim, that is, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Um, uh, so when we're speaking of Torah, uh, there is a specific definition that can be uh, given to it, and there is a more generalized concept that can be given to it, because that generalized concept uh, becomes colloquial in its language of sorts, and becomes recognized over time as speaking not only of those books that Moses authored, but also speaking of those books that seek to give commentary or extrapolate on those books, namely the prophets, the writings, and the such. Uh, and as you said, the book of Genesis is of utmost importance. In fact, it is quintessential to the biblical text. I want to be very careful uh, from a biblical standpoint and from an academic or scholastic standpoint in saying that it is the most important book of the entire Bible. I think that there is a certain uh, import that belongs to each of the books of the Bible so that we cannot do without any of them within the framework of the canon. Uh, that is due to God's sovereign choice and due to the, uh, 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 to the importance uh, 
that he places upon every absolute nuance of his word. We see that kind of uh, picture drawn for us through the words of Christ himself in Matthew chapter number 5. Uh, literally not one tittle, uh, not one marking or overhang that belongs to an alphabet consonant, and not one yod, the smallest consonant within the framework of the 22 alphabets in the Hebrew uh, uh, language. Uh, uh, not either of those will pass away, or, or heaven and earth, rather, will pass away, but he will not allow even the smallest aspect of his word to pass away. Uh, uh, he will see to the fulfillment of the entirety of his word. And so it is all equally important, but as we are discussing uh, the book of Genesis, it bears a certain importance that is um, uh, uh, great indeed. And let me just kind of speak to why it's great. Uh, the most attacked section of Scripture uh, throughout the years is Genesis chapter 1 through chapter number 11. That's because in those first 11 chapters, you have the entire seed plot of the Bible in germ form given to you. Uh, uh, literally, every major thematic concept that's going to be dealt with from chapters 12 on through the book of Revelation finds itself in some form uh, uh, present in Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter number 11. For instance... If we're going to talk about the Savior, there's no need for a Savior if we can soundly debunk Genesis chapter number 3, wherein we have sin. Uh, Romans chapter number 5, the concept of a second Adam, if there is no literal first Adam, uh, then there is no need, of course, for a second Adam. Uh, if we have the concept of death, if we don't have the concept of death in Genesis 3, and this constant uh, phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died, uh, repeated in uh, Genesis chapter number 5, then we literally have no need for the cure of death, nor any real legitimate explanation for the cause of death. Uh, uh, if we debunk Genesis 6 through 9, uh, the whole flood narrative, not only do we not have anticipation for a second major cataclysmic destruction by fire, uh, but we also have no real depiction of the concept of the judgment of God that the book of Revelation literally looks forward to um, uh, and anticipates as a prophecy to be fulfilled. And also one Peter sees that same kind of idea um, as one that is anticipated in the future uh, of this world uh, that we live in. Uh, so uh, that is a very short list. Literally, it is of great importance. Um, uh, it is to be taken seriously. It is to be taken um, uh, um, uh, very, very, very um, um, seriously and soberly when we are investigating. May I respond uh, with, with this? Uh, my understanding is that the, the Torah itself focuses on three major moments. Uh, that that ex explains or explores that changing relationship between God and people, um, given that the first 11 chapters uh, really talk about uh, the, the creation of the world. Um, and I suppose of God's early relationship with humanity. And then, as you say, the, the, the remaining 39 chapters uh, providing an account of God's covenant and, and of course, um, uh, the covenant with the, the Hebrew patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of course Jacob's children. What, what it seems so strange, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Genesis does receive so many attacks, and yet is that not, um, does that not counter with the rest of the Bible that, that cannot stand up without Genesis. So why would it be that Genesis is, is so distinctive in this attack when it is setting up such a huge precedent for everything that comes after it? Well, let me be very, very clear and uh, uh, state that there are, in fact, 50 chapters within the framework of Genesis. And again, uh, there is great credibility to your statement that there is an importance 
of, of an august nature that we must um, uh, adhere to when we are studying the, the book of Genesis. And in fact, you are right. If we literally undermine the book of Genesis again, uh, then we literally undermine the entire credibility of the entire text of Scripture. But let me be very clear also and say that uh, according to Paul's words to Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now that means this. That means that all Scripture is literally God-breathed. Moreover, it means that the same importance that God has given to one text of Scripture in breathing it out for instruction, for correction in righteousness, etc., uh, so that the servant of God might be thorough in every aspect of his life and his ministry. Um, uh, that kind of scenario may be attached to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But allow a metaphor, if you will, that will help us to kind of... Um, uh, navigate through these waters. Um, uh, can we say that if an individual is knitting or if an individual is preparing to do something of sewing in order to prepare a garment, uh, every piece of thread that is placed through the garment is important, but there is going to be a certain sobering significance that is going to go into the original knot because the original knot will hold all of the other thread together. But the argument is while that knot, that original knot, is of utmost importance because it really does stabilize the entirety of the thread woven to, through the garment. Nonetheless, if one cuts the thread at any point, then the garment as a whole is compromised. But most certainly, if you do not have that, that particular knot, it does not matter how finely you attempt to weave the thread throughout the garment. Uh, it will have been for naught because you have nothing to hold it. The book of Genesis then becomes the anchor, the substratum, the foundation, if you will, to the fine thread of truth that is woven through Exodus and Revelation. As such, it is important, it is equally important, but there is a gleaming importance about it, much like the anchor that stabilizes the ship amidst the sea. One thing I'd like to explore is, do we not concentrate enough on the characters in Genesis? It is, is it not amazing that uh, when we, we read the, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and and see that these individuals had history to work from. They, they had knowledge of what went before. Uh, in, in the academic world, in, in teaching theology, is there an emphasis placed upon the divineness, the amazement of how Moses uh, and Abraham and Jacob Found God without any history. They were the first ones, as it were. Uh, Is is that explored in in theology? That that uh, uh, amazing um, uh, separation between uh, between the the two testaments, as it were. Well, allow a a bit of corrective language, if you will, to that statement. Uh, First of all. Um, the Bible is not just given to us in propositional truth. That is not, albeit to undermine the reality and the existence of propositional truths within the framework of Scripture. But these truths are woven into real lives, uh, because that's what God is dealing with. Uh, he's dealing with individuals. Uh, as such, these truths are woven into the lives of people through relationship and in a relational way. Thus, any genuine study of the narrative, in fact, the largest portion or parcel of the biblical text is in narrative form. Any real study of the text of Scripture demands, it mandates, indeed it insists upon a study of the characters and their lives into which and through which God has by the Holy Spirit woven these truths that they might be lessons for us. And I really think that that's a very wise way to do it because we are living our lives out as well. And as we see that they encountered certain scenarios in which 
they were challenged with honesty, in which they were challenged with difficulty, in which they were challenged with life's obstacles and the such. We see how they took that truth and in applicability lived it out or failed to do so. And in that particular framework, we saw how their lives were victorious or they lacked victory. Uh, and, and so uh, I would say this, uh, on a hermeneutic scale, that is, on a biblical interpretive scale, the wise exegete will always lend his or her time toward a study of the characters in whom and through whom a God in relationship wove his essential truths in life in order to not only teach them, but in order to teach generations to come. And so you might say that you see that in both the, um, uh, in the Tanakh as well as you see that in the Brit Hadashah, or in the uh, New Testament, uh, if you will. Uh, you see that in both. Uh, you see that, of course, as you said, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and you also see that many times in the epistles. Of course, they are written in didactic form, much more so than you have sometimes in the Old Testament. But still, though they're written in didactic form, they're written to personalities, churches, individuals uh, that are struggling with real-life issues. Uh, let me address the second facet of that and say that when we're talking about an individual having an, an original experience with God, uh, uh, that is of great importance, if you will. Um, uh, but I want to be careful uh, to say that there is not necessarily, as you move on throughout the generations, such an absence of the information as we would begin to think. And of course, uh, the earlier point that I made is quite clear to the Judaic mind. Protestantism doesn't always do a good job with the Tanakh because the New Testament, frankly, is a whole lot easier to study because it is many times didactic and in, in the form of propositional truths. And so diving into the history, having to go through a long history, if you will, in order to um, uh, uncover the treasure that lies therein, um, it's easier, if you will, to go back uh, uh, 2,000 years to a civilization that was a lot closer to ours than to go maybe... 3,500 years back or, or the such, and, and to have to find out what geography, topography is, and, and have to uh, unweave out of that God's truth and see it clearly on a supercultural scale that applies to us today. Uh, it's a whole lot harder to, to uh, familiarize oneself with their customs and habits and things of that nature, or with idiomatic language or phraseology that we are now almost divorced from and has become quite archaic in our modernized world today. So there's a reason why for the Protestants they do an ill-fated job and, and, and often uh, a very weak job, if you will, in their care of the Tanakh. And it ought not be, and I think our Judaic brothers and sisters uh, do a far greater job than many, not all, but than many Protestants. And oftentimes, many liberals give greater academic and scholastic care to areas of these texts of Scripture than many conservatives do. Uh, we're always very reactive rather than acting from a first-cause position. Uh, when you're looking at these truths, David, when you're trying to uh, discover these things, uh, one is challenged with the reality that uh, within the framework of this, of this mining for the diamonds and the gold of God's truth, the precious gems of God's truth, uh, not that it is difficult, but as we mine the Word of God, the Holy Spirit then uses the Word of God to also uh, dig deeply in us and in our lives. And I would argue that many times the reason why we fail to make that real treasure hunt is because we really don't want uh, to be found out ourselves. Because one cannot confront the Word of God that is a living document without the Word of God turning around and confronting us by the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I'm fascinated by those last statements, and, and I have to tell our listeners, by the way, CL, that I've got this wonderful smile on my face. If, if, I, if I told our listeners that, that you and I had been working on this for some 10 weeks, 
Uh, and my main comment is, CL, keep keep the responses short. Uh, that's that's why I I have a smile on my face. Um, I hope that's a positive, David. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. What's of interest, though, is is uh, now we've established for our listeners that uh, we're going to be examining the Torah. Uh, what uh, do you see as our goals? How uh, and in line with with uh, your your final statements there, how does the Torah's role play in life today? How do we apply that? And and how would you like to be able to? Uh, assure that as we break down the Torah and discuss it and explore it, that our listeners um, gain a full impact and benefit uh, from from the way that the Torah relates to us in our lives today. Well, first, let <laughs> let's set out a warning, uh, because many individuals arrogantly or otherwise uh, uh, look at this section of scripture and see therein no applicability for their lives. And yet 1 Corinthians 10 and many other areas of scripture would argue for the applicability of the Torah to that first century audience as well as to our modern audience. And it is arrogant to think that God so locked these concepts within cultural um, aspects that he left them chained and fettered in a time that they are now irrelevant to the modern-minded man or woman. The truth of the matter is, we've got to be very careful in our, in our investigation of this text, because we start not from a, um, an advantaged point, but really from a disadvantaged point. And the reason why we begin from a disadvantaged point is because, to begin with, many of the listeners will be challenged to find any sort of relevancy or appreciation in their search or in their hearing of uh, these truths. Uh, and so we have to fight to do the investigation. And when we do the investigation, we must do the investigation, first of all, from the standpoint that God demands that we do it. In other words, we should have hearts that are wholeheartedly devoted to what it takes to be hearers and doers of the Word of God. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 really argues that, and, and if we were uh, Jewish by root, uh, we would be very familiar with this phraseology, uh, the Shema, uh, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, or Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. The, the introduction of that particular section of Scripture, the Shema, literally is to hear. Uh, in Greek, uh, in the Septuagint, it is this root word, akuo. Uh, the concept in Hebrew is to hear with the intent to obey. God placed within the framework of these words, this culture, these stories, if you will, truths that were not only to be heard, but they were to be obeyed. And to be certain, the mistake that we do not want to make is applying across the board. We can't certainly apply those truths immediately without, um, uh, without allowing them to be strained, if you will, uh, after a fine cook has cooked his or her meal. Uh, that individual will often take certain dishes and they will strain them uh, so that only those things that are relevant and good to be eaten for uh, those who are to be nourished at the table, uh, they will consume those things. We will take the whole and we will see the whole in its context, but then we will go through the strainer of applicability and we will strip those truths of their culturalization, of their customs, and we will see what, their, what the universal principles, theological principles that are applicable to all individuals for all time are. Uh, that is our first goal, to look at that. And that means in order to do that, we must investigate them deeply. We must investigate them thoroughly, but we must also de investigate them devotionally. Uh, as we are investigating those truths, we will seek to point out the applicability to the audience, because it's not always easily seen. And then we'll seek to dwell there in the point of applicability, 
and, and, and wed the point of applicability with modern instances and issues that we run into in today's times, such as we'll discuss, as you know, the Imagio Deo, or the image of God, and we'll discuss how the image of God affects how we ought, in modern-day society, look at not only men, but look at women as well. How we should look at not only those who are well, but we should also look at those who are sick. Uh, we should not only look at those who are rich, but we should also look at those who are poor. We should not only look at those who are American, but we should look at those who are of foreign countries. We should not only look at a benefited society that lives in a higher upper class echelon, but we should also look at third world countries and su that suffer on a constant basis from hunger and other maladies. And we should look at them and see therein the gift and grace of the Imagio Deo or the image of God that argues that they have inherent worth and value that we cannot sidestep. And so we'll ask the question, how then, from that platform, are we to deal with those of a, of a lesser benefited state than we ourselves find ourselves in? Uh, we will discuss things of that nature. So that's our goal, David, not only to do research on an academic level, but to do it devotionally, to do it in a way that will allow for applicability, and finally and ultimately to be transformed by those truths resulting in intimacy with God, from which I pray none of us shall ever recover. And you've actually preempted my, my question, CL. I, I was going to, and maybe this is still relevant as, as we are providing this as an introduction to the series and, and, and uh, an introduction to yourself. Uh, advice for people. Advice for people, given that this is going to be uh, an internationally broadcast program, advice for people to interpret the Torah um, and finding how to apply that uh, to their lives, to our lives in, in this year 2009. What, what can we do here to ensure that the impact is at its greatest and that there is full clarity that ensures that that application is successful for, for anybody uh, listening to this series in the future? First, first, we want to argue for familiarity. And I want to be very clear when I say familiarity. Um, let us say that we have a cook, and that cook is uh, in a period of time like we all find ourselves currently, particularly in the United States, in uh, the period of holiday uh, or going to celebrate something by way of Christmas, and they have their family all coming. And they would like to prepare a dish. Uh, let's say that they've been giving a cookbook, and they look in this cookbook, and they find this fantastic recipe. And as they find this fantastic recipe, they do their best to uh, uh, see to uh, placing the elements or the ingredients together in order to produce this dish. Now, this dish, when it's produced, when it's cooked, is really good this year. But this person actually undertakes the effort to practice this dish a few times before Christmas 2010. My question to you is, will the dish have been better in its original making or due to the practice and familiarity of the cook with the ingredients, knowing what can be added in greater measure, what can be lessened in lesser measure, will it be better in 2010? I think it's a rhetorical question. Certainly with familiarity with the recipe, it will be better. And really, we're living in a society that is almost biblically illiterate. I would suggest that in order to understand any part, portion, or parcel of the Bible, one needs to thoroughly immerse him or herself therein. In other words, before we begin this as a community, no matter what country they're in, read it, read, pour over the book of Genesis. Secondarily, I would suggest, listen not simply with an ear of easy believism. In fact, that is hardly the concept of faith as it is presented throughout the text of Scripture. No, uh, faith is not an unintelligent man's journey. It, indeed, it is quite contradistinctive to that, quite contrary to that. Uh, it is an intelligent venture. Turn your mind on to the need to think through the passage and to thoroughly 
avail oneself to research. Now, everyone's not going to be able to do that on an equal scale. But John and I, as well as yourself, we're going to try to uh, lend the materials to them and make mention of materials that will make that possible. Uh, I would suggest that they turn on their minds. Third, I would suggest that they unarmor their hearts. It's easy for us to come to the text of Scripture and in coming to protect ourselves or inoculate ourselves or build an immune system for ourselves against being convicted and convinced of those truths. Listen, there'll be, in these commentary times, no sleight of hand. None of us are magicians. None of us are practicing illusionists. We're going to go verse by verse throughout the text of Scripture. But when you see those truths, one should avail themselves to those truths and practice those truths by the power of the Holy Spirit as one can in every context of their lives. And when one has done all of this, one should yield themselves to prayer. Listen, uh, if I want to uh, uh, build something, I often consult with the instructions that have come from the designers. It is important that we build our relationship with the God of the book. That is the means and methodology by which we will become more immersed and familiar and intertwined with the truths of the book, and they'll be more easily understood because God can unclothe them to our hearts and apply them therein. And then the next is have a sense of humility. Rome wasn't built in a day. We won't get through this in a day. Some things are murky waters, and they are quite difficult. Or some things are quite plain, and as a result of our circumstances in life, we have wrestling matches with those truths because of the way that we've been brought up or our culture. Be patient and yet be humble. And by humility, I mean the essence of the word as it is presented in Greek. Align yourself militarily under the governorship of God, making progress through the text as he graciously, mercifully, and lovingly leads us through the text. May I just return to... uh the issue of ingredients. Um, we're, we're talking about the, the, the same ingredients improving. Um, and, and it seems that 2,000 years later, are there not new ingredients? And, and, and how do we ensure that the listener uh, applies that? I, I would say that when we're talking about new ingredients... I would say that it's not so much new ingredients as it is the children, the great-grandchildren, have discovered uh, in certain areas certain facets of pinches of this or cups of this that grandmother or great-grandmother actually used that uh, we were not aware of earlier. So what do I mean by that analogy? It's quite simple, really. The concept is uh, it's not that there are new ingredients, as it were. The concept is that we are... Uh, as bibliologists, as archaeologists, uh, as exegetes, as scholars, as academics, we are discovering things as we do um, archaeological finds. There's more information that uh, uh, comes to us, and so that aids us in, in a greater flavor of understanding, if you will, as it pertains to the text. I also want to be careful not to err on the other side as well, because we would almost think that we have new ingredients in our day and time. And yet I would argue that we do not have as much new ingredients as we'd like to argue. Uh, the wise sage of Scripture, Solomon, said there really is nothing new under the sun. In fact, what you see is a graduated means and methodology by which to stumble over the same stone. Uh, we really do wrestle with people who are power-hungry. We wrestle with problems in marriages. We still do wrestle with individuals that have certain appetites uh, that are ill-gotten appetites. We still wrestle with uh, people who um, deal with anger, deal with sadness, depression, suicide, uh, physical maladies, mental maladies, societal maladies, and the such. Uh, we all wrestle with sin. No one has graduated beyond that particular standpoint as yet save the gracious work of Christ operating in and through us to cleanse us and to give us victorious living. As such, I would say 
uh, as we're talking about ingredients, it's important to remember uh, that uh, there are uh, a plethora of materials available to us in today's time that were not necessarily available to some of our forefathers, giants, if you will, on whose shoulders we stand as uh, scholars today. Uh, they did certain things that uh, opened the door for us to search maybe a hundred years after their lives. And uh, by doing that, it has allowed us to be able to make uh, a clearer uh, exposition of certain texts. But it's hardly a new ingredient. It's just new to the hearer or to the listener or to the researchers, but it's not new from the framework of God or to that older audience who was well aware of what God was saying within the framework of their context. And and in just clarifying that in a, in a few words, uh, and I'm not meaning to to go over and over and 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 try and uh, regurgitate this, but uh, as we move forward and and as the three of us sit here in future months, how is it that you would like our listeners to literally act on the information that we are providing in today's world? It, it, is, it is, I would like to say that it is my goal, but I'm afraid that my goal is uh, sub, um, it, it, it is aligned under, if you will, um, the greatest goal maker, and that is God. And when he makes a goal for us, it is always a good goal, and he has good in mind for the person for whom he has designed the goal. It, it is my hope and my prayer, uh, like the Reformers, that we would realize uh, the concept of sola gloria Deo, that is, the glory of God alone. Uh, in other words, it is his goal that we, having been made for his character, for an expression of his character, for an expression of the weightiness of his reputation, would then, by his power, live out his character and his reputation in his world in order to not only have a better life and in order to be a greater asset to society at large, but also to ultimately, on a cosmic scale, sing live and present his character in a way that honors him. So it's my hope that when an individual is listening to the edicts and the design concerning marriage, let's say in Genesis chapter number 2, that individual will go back and investigate his or her own relationship with their spouse or their future relationship with an intended spouse. And they would say, how does my life, my motive, my circumstances align themselves with the character of God as he has for good purposes expressed what marriage is to be like in order to honor how Christ honors and cares for the church? How is my marriage meeting that criteria? How is it failing? to meet that high and holy standard. And now what can I do daily to see to the improvement of that immediate status so that on a cosmic scale, God is pleased and God's weighty, glorious, magnificent reputation is seen in my little home on whatever block, on whatever street, or whatever avenue I live. Can you... Can you uh, give me your thoughts, an overview, as it were, on society at present? There's no doubt about it that we are living in a very disturbed time, uh, not just economically, but emotionally. Uh, we seem to be seeing widespread dilemmas. Uh, what is this indicative of? Is there something driving this to your mind uh, that we uh, or our listeners could relate 
back to in the Torah that we could um, in some way uh, attach ourselves to uh, um, what was written then uh, about uh, those those uh, those people who appear then um, what are your thoughts on that absolutely uh, let me be very direct um, as we peer upon our society we note well that despite our socioeconomic advantage or disadvantage, despite our educational prowess or lack thereof, we note well that we cannot escape the disease, the state of the heart or the soul that is fallen and is separated from God, this concept of sin. Why, that's not new. That's Genesis 3. We note well that we are in a world where sin is so grotesque that it often results in an open cruelty toward one's closest relatives, let alone towards one's neighbor. That's Genesis 4, the murder, the premeditated murder of Abel by his elder brother Cain. By the way, that's in the first family. Uh, we note the constancy of death, whether it is uh, at the hands of one in the battlefield, uh, whether it is at the hand of one on the uh, home front, whether it is by incident, by accident, whether it is cataclysmic, whether it is peaceful in the night, whether it is by a long-standing disease such as cancer or heart disease or something of the sort, or whether it is just immediate or acute and and surprises everyone, whether it is the aged that is 80 or 90 years old, or whether it is a young lad or a young female of 20 or so years old, or even younger. Uh, that's Genesis 5, and he died, and he died, and he died, and they keep on dying. Uh, we see earthquakes, we see circumstances of immediate localized floods, and while we will argue for a universal flood in Genesis 6 through 9, Yet, we still see the concepts of the groanings of the earth as we have tidal waves and floods and 30,000 die and 100,000 die and on and on and on. As we go on, we see um, uh, people who uh, seek to build large, arrogant monuments as an affront and as a high-fisted challenge to God. Uh, in order to assault and insult the intelligence of God and gather together as a humanistic society arguing we do not need God or an atheistic society, there is no God or agnostic society. I don't have enough information to argue for the validity of God. And so we will build something that is a monument to humanity itself, uh, whether that monument be governmental or, or whether it be financial or whether it be you name it. Uh, that's Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. In other words, the book of Genesis is just as relevant as the modern newspaper in anyone's world today. Uh, let me ask this question. as it, It's slightly r rhetorical, CL. What we're doing here in, in this series going forward is we are asking our listeners to uh, gain knowledge, gain experience, um, gain understanding by identifying what went before in the early chapters of the scriptures. Uh, having looked at that scenario, could we reverse that? Could we, uh, could we look at um, any examples in the Torah about w w where the Jews um, uh, could have even... Um, expected to be in the future and, and that struggle, uh, given today that we have technology and genocide and, 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 and science evolving at a rapid pace. Is, is there any way that, that you could reverse that? Uh, would you please clarify the concept of reverse? And I think what you mean by reverse is, can we see an early depiction of where the Jews anticipated and the early uh, patriarchal um, believers anticipated such growth, such progression, if you will, be it uh, a positive 
Well, yes. Uh, I think what I'm really saying is, would they have ever guessed uh, where we would be today? Um, uh, you know, isn't it amazing where where we've come? Um, how how would they <laughs> how would they think about that? Well, I, I think first of all that early mankind was far more intelligent than we would care to um, allow in our own minds. Uh, I think there are several aspects that lend proof to that, not only within the biblical text, but in extra-biblical literature. And I think it's quite arrogant in our day and time to be presumptuous and think that we are the latest, greatest, best anything. Uh, There are societies that have done it far better than we have, uh, and they have excelled in doing it. And so I certainly want to uh, give a... a, a, um, a tip of my hat, if you will, to those cultures and and not uh, reduce them to um, an ignorant society. Um, I've noticed that we haven't done much to improve on wheels or on fire or things of that nature, so I want to make sure that we uh, um, uh, have an appreciation for such individuals. In saying that, um, um, I also want to make sure that we do not leave it to just the mental prowess of an early society that could have simply seen or guessed or hinted at such concepts, uh, much like the fictive horoscopes of today or much like the concepts surrounding uh, the Mayan calendar and Nostradamus. Uh, biblical prophecy is not guesswork. There is a God who is outside of the box of humanity who was able to articulate through individuals that he had chosen certain things that would occur. And what we find is 100% accuracy for prophecy. Uh, It is this God who, uh, through the prophets, foretold concerning the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, and an empire that would come thereafter that was mixed with iron and clay and then a stone that was hewn out of the mountain uh, that did not owe owe its credibility to mankind, and it would come and smash all of those empires, and its kingdom would last forever, Um, quite accurately, if you will. Uh, It was Cyrus who was named 200 years before he even came into existence or even came through to have any sort of dealings with the Jews, as it were. Uh, So is there some level to which there may have been some awareness? Uh, Yes, uh, John prophesied in the book of Revelation concerning Jesus Christ, if you will, of things that uh, we are in the um, the, uh, stir of currently. We are seeing them come about, and we are seeing, no matter how society denies the word of God, it's an odd thing that we have not yet escaped the reality of its fulfillment on every scale. I want to be certain and say that they were not using guesswork, but uh, God was literally orchestrating, moving, carrying them along to speak of things that were far beyond their day and time. However, I need to give a certain qualification. This does not necessitate thorough knowledge on the part of the individual or in the mind of the individual that is speaking intelligently by the grace of God to a future scenario doesn't mean that they saw it in toto, but it can suggest that they did see it in part and parcel and see it uh, by God's divine aid. More than this, I think what needs to be stated concerning this point is they too lived in their time with great humility. I have every reason to believe that Adam had no clue what he would unleash upon upon his disobedience to God. And I think he sees a picture of that in his immediate family when his eldest son tragically murders his youngest son. Uh, I think he begins to see some of it as he's kicked out of the garden. I think he sees some of it as he and Eve are separated. But as the years go on and as he gets closer to the period of the flood, not living right at the point of the flood, but getting closer, Josephus says he often went to uh, one of the rivers, the river Euphrates outside of the garden, and would bathe himself. Uh, he says on an extra-biblical note, 
I'm, I'm trying to reacquaint himself with that earlier stage of life that he knew in the presence of God and with fellowship um, uh, with that loving God. Uh, the concept is, I think he had some small picture, but I hardly think that he had a full-orbed, full-colored picture of the detriment, degradation, and devastation that would become of our modern world due to his disobedience to God. And, and, and David, on that note, do any of us? When we make a move to count sin worthy of the immediate gratification that it lends to us at this moment within this 60 seconds, do we always understand thoroughly what, what it will do to ourselves, to our family, to our wives, to our children, to our husbands, to our grandchildren, to our great-grandchildren? Um, I hardly think so. Ask the posterity of a criminal, and then ask the posterity of Abraham Lincoln, and if you trace the distant lineage, you'll see that the efficacy and uh, the diverseness of those two lines often results in either great blessing or great tragedy. Well, let me, uh, in the, the final uh, couple of minutes of our program today, uh, let me just ask you to um, briefly uh, give us uh, um, uh, your background, uh, CL, um, and, and also the background of uh, your colleague, John Corr, who will be joining us. Um, and uh, just uh, let our listeners know uh, how you intend to apply uh, your work uh, in the church today and um, uh, apply that to this, uh, this program and these listeners from around the world. All right. I'll, I'll take the middle um, uh, inquiry and deal with it first, and then we'll try and and briefly see to the other two questions. First of all, John uh, Core is a wonderful teacher um, and academician. Um, he is a fellow seminarian. In fact, we spend time together uh, in the uh, halls of uh, biblical investigation. Uh, he is a, an integral uh, servant of God, a husband, a father, a phenomenal friend, a phenomenal Bible teacher. In fact, he teaches at one of the largest churches. He teaches a, uh, a uh, constant Sunday school class in this section of Scripture uh, to uh, a group on every single Sunday faithfully, I might add. Um, he's extraordinary in every way, and I'm delighted to call him brother in Christ and more than that, friend. Um, uh, as it pertains to myself, uh, that's always difficult to describe. Um, I, I would like to think that I am devoted to a relationship with God that demands a certain hunger, and so it drives the investigative side of me. Um, I enjoy uh, my time personally with my beloved wife, uh, whom, I'm a, I, whom I affectionately refer to as sweetie, and my son, who is a delight. Uh, I certainly also enjoy pouring over times of play outside of my biblical studies with my son, and we love to go to the park and feed ducks and geese and things of that nature. And I love spending uh, date time with my beautiful spouse of several years now, and I'm ever so grateful for the grace of God poured on me lavishly in uh, that sweet and holy union. Um, uh, as it pertains to um, ministry. Uh, God blessed me from a very early age. My father is an extraordinary academician and expositor. Um, he had the number one radio broadcast in the state of Arizona for several years. Um, he is yet alive and with us. He is an elder now. Uh, and when I say an elder, I mean an older man. I use the term quite literally. And uh, literally, I am, I am quite blessed to say this. Due to some of the afflictions that attends his body currently, uh, he really only has the operation of one eye, and yet there's hardly a time when I go to his residence that he's not reading faithfully the Word of God and research literature with that one eye. That's the heritage of faithfulness that uh, God has granted me. My mother, phenomenal woman of God and prayer 
much conducive to growth and progression uh, within the framework of God's call on our lives uh, as, as children. Um, uh, with that said, um, I enjoy sharing in the uh, heritage of being a third-generational senior pastor of a church, and I hope, I trust, that uh, the congregation delights in it. Uh, it's a unique situation, I believe. It's a, uh, unique not because it's a multicultural church, but it's unique because we fail to bend to the biblical illiteracy and the constant poetry and uh, various things that are used in pulpits today across the world. Uh, rather, we simply would like to believe that God's Word is worth hearing, and they, as D. James Kennedy, the late D. James Kennedy said, are truths that transform, and so we need to be faithful to the teaching and preaching of God's Word. Uh, on an academic scale, I'd like to mention that uh, God has used over the years many great leaders to pour into my life, uh, including my father and others. And I am humbled and honored to be the student of such individuals, both Jewish teachers as well as um, high-level um, theological Protestant teachers uh, with very recognized names. I, I do not call those names not to uh, forego the excellence that they have invested in me, but in humility to suggest that uh, we should lie low, exalt Christ, and realize that if any good thing comes, it will not come because of my reputation or my background, as it were, although that does lend to a great ability to further um, uh, accomplish the work of God. Uh, but together, these individuals have really invested in my own heart, and so it's the voices from many generations and many waters of faithfulness to Christ that uh, cry through this very simple and sorry voice in mine in order to give what I believe will be um, um, truths that will transform and bring about intimacy uh, in the tears and hearts of the people from which they will never recover. And we only have about a minute left here, but uh, what is the impact on your life, CL? Obviously, uh, teaching, exploring uh, Scripture and the Word of God at a local level here. Uh, how does it impact you uh, with the thought that this will reach uh, many, many people, not only in this country, but abroad. I am both sobered by it and humbled by it, and I am thrust into prayer concerning it. Um, it it's going to be efficacious. Uh, it'll have to be because God will uh, employ us and empower us to the task, making us fit to be servants that will be poured out for the sake of the accomplishments that will be gained throughout uh, the lives of many people who we have not uh, hitherto and some of whom we may not ever have occasion to see face to face. So my approach is one of great humility and prayer and anticipation. I thoroughly delight that God would choose such a simple individual uh, to pour into the lives of individuals who are significant in their own right their own arena, and prayerfully God will allow something valuable, something such as a golden piece of fruit to drop from these weak clay lips to the point that an entire society will be benefited thereby. With that said, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, and I am hopeful that our listeners will have uh, received uh, a clarity and a visibility of uh, one part of the uh, team that will be part of this great series in the future. Uh, C.L. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us today. David, my equal gratitude to you. Have a marvelous day. And you. And to our listeners, we appreciate you joining us today. We hope that you've enjoyed the program. We'll look forward to seeing you next time uh, on this particular series where we'll be talking to John Corr, the other side of the scenario in this long-term series. And we wish you well, wherever you may be in this world. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Music